as we anticipate Christmas and the birth of Christ. Those four things, uh, that we're, those themes and stories that we're going to talk about are, are faithfulness in and through uh, Bathsheba, who is called Uriah's wife in, in the genealogy, judgment in the story of Rahab, redemption in the story of Ruth, and justice in the story of Tamar. Now, genealogies in general are, are, are so interesting because it, it was probably several years ago, about a decade now, since, since like things like Ancestry.com and, and different ways of, of looking at your past and understanding who you relate to, who your ancestors were. Like before that actually became a thing that is now normal and not that big of a deal, it was a huge fad and, and exciting, but it was, and, and so it's kind of like on our radar that, that genealogy might be good now. It's, it's become accessible for people who may not otherwise have been able to, to go back into their family history and even know. But in Jesus' day and age, in, in the ancient Near East, and when the Old Testament and New Testament is written, and for centuries afterward even, your genealogy was your identity in so many ways. It was your spiritual and moral resume. It was, it's, it was a legacy. It told you where you came from, who you came from. It told you who you are, where you fit in society. It has massive implications for who you are, what you do, how you live, the stories that you tell, the way that you relate to people, past, present, and future. I, uh, before Ancestry.com was a thing, or actually before even the internet was a thing, when I was little, my grandfather... Um, went all in on, on, on learning about and researching my own family's genealogy. In fact, he even wrote a book about it. It's called The Edwards Legacy. Um, and I'm waving it around kind of quickly so you can't see that it actually says uh, Edwards. It's spelled with an E-S at the end. And that's not because I'm trying to like fake it till I make it or anything. It's because that's how it was spelled in the original Welsh uh, spelling. And so he... He wrote this book, and I didn't I actually didn't know that he had written this book until I was in seminary, training to be a pastor. At which time, uh, my I came home the the first Christmas, about a year into seminary, and was hanging out with my dad, and he was asking like, "How is it?" And my dad's not a Christian, and so I'm trying to like find ways of of kind of relating it to him. And I, I remember telling him like, "Oh yeah, you know they, I'm, I'm doing so well that they even named a building after our family." you know, Edwards Hall. And I'm, I'm making a joke, and he knew it was a joke. It was just like, uh-huh, yeah. But he said, seriously, actually, it's probably named after one of our, our ancestors. I'm like, no, it's not. What are you talking about? He said, oh, yeah, yeah, we're, we're related to the, one of those uh, smoke and limestone preachers. And I'm like, wait, you, you mean fire and brimstone? And, and he's, 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 yeah, yeah, he... Let me show you. And so he, he takes me into the garage, opens up a book, a, a box that has like a dozen copies of this book in it, and turns and starts flipping it open to this page. If you don't know who this is, this is Jonathan and Sarah Edwards. Jonathan Edwards is quoted in more books uh, and theological texts than I can shake a stick at. And I even remember in high school reading as a literary exercise of the kind of Puritan uh, style of writing and literature at the time, uh, his most famous sermon, which is unfortunately also his most infamous sermon, uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. 
I had no idea I was related to him, never mind the fact that I'm apparently the ninth generation directly descended. And having not grown up in the church, I was pretty shocked to learn that uh, I was actually getting into the family business, in a sense. Because there are four generations of the eight between Jonathan Edwards and I, I think four of them are, were, were preachers. So I get by this honestly, apparently. But I didn't even know that before I felt called into it. God has a sense of humor. <laughs> um, in fact, uh, our son, Ransom, we call him by his middle name in part because uh, his, his first name, we wanted to name him Jonathan Edwards because we wanted to kind of restart the tradition that Jonathan Edwards had of praying for his family seven generations deep. And we wanted to, to signify that. And by the way, my dad is the eighth generation and he's the only one that I'm aware of that isn't a Christian. And so that tells you something about the power of prayer and also the power of God's faithfulness. But we, we, we call Ransom by his middle name because it's just way too cruel to, name a, to have a, a PK go by Jonathan Edwards. I just didn't want him to do that. My point of this is, is that I'm really, really, really cool to a very, very, very small group of theology nerds, pastors, and more recently, thankfully, hardcore fans of Hamilton because of one line sung by Aaron Burr. But if our culture were more like first century Israel, I'm not even kidding when I say I would actually be a minor celebrity. Okay? Because, but, but I'm not. And I'm not, and nobody gives a rip. I, like, I've been told by so many pastors who think that's amazing, like, you should put that in your fundraising letters. And let me tell, me, let me tell you how many times it's actually helped. Zero. Okay? No time has that ever helped. Okay? That is because in the modern West, our identity, our, our own self-understanding and how we relate to each other, how other people relate to us, we see our identity as a blank slate when we are born. It is something that individuals build and achieve on their own. It is not an inheritance or a legacy that we are called to steward. It's something that we achieve, not receive Herod the Great, like, like to, to, I'm trying, I want to con communicate how big of a deal a genealogy is in the context of Matthew 1. Because Herod the Great, who is the father of the Herod that, that we, we know from the Gospels, that Herod doctored his family tree specifically in order to increase his legitimacy as king, right? So how many of you are Harry Potter fans? He was the equivalent of House Slytherin, right? The goal, if you were a in a royal family, you wanted your bloodline to be pure. You needed to be a pure blood. No muggles allowed, okay? But Matthew 1, for when, when House Slytherin is everyone, when that's everything, Matthew 1 and the, the, the people that are included in his genealogy, not least of which these four women, makes muggles look good. Right, Because not only are these four women, they're four ethnically Gentile women. They're spiritual outsiders in every way. And they are cited and listed in Jesus' genealogy, the genealogy of the true King of kings and Lord of lords born on Christmas Day. What does that mean? 
That is what we're going to be talking about in this sermon series. But we're going to talk and start with Uriah's wife, because this relates to the story of David, which we have just finished a sermon series about the life of David this fall. And Uriah's wife is also known as Bathsheba. That's her name. Hers is a story about waiting for the advent of faithfulness. Now, to know who Bathsheba is, we need to know a little bit about Uriah, too. See, Uriah was one of David's 30 mighty men. He was one of the elite warriors and faithful friends that left their home and left everything, that their legacy and their inheritance behind in order to follow someone who was being persecuted by Saul, King Saul, but there is something special about this guy. There's something about this guy. There's an anointing even that this guy was different, that God was going to work through him. And so it was worth leaving everything to follow him. And he, they stuck by him. Uriah stuck by him like nobody else. One of his 30 most faithful, loyal friends. When David was was crowned king. He was consolidating his throne. It says in 2 Samuel 11, I'm going to read a few verses here. While he's consolidating his throne and, and fighting Israel's enemies and protecting and, 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 and solidifying his rule, it says this, starting in verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab, we've talked about Joab, he's not a great guy, and his servants with him, and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Now, after this verse, it says that David, in order to cover up his, like indiscretion is putting it lightly, and we're going to talk about that in a second, okay? Don't hear what I'm not saying. David sends to the front lines to have Uriah come back in the hopes that he will come into his home and lay with his wife after being away fighting a war in order for there to be a plausible deniability that this is his child. Uriah, though, has enough honor to not do that which is deprived of his men on the front lines of battle and he sleeps in the doorway of his own home. After that, David, like he's not done yet, he's going to try again. He gets him drunk. He gets Uriah drunk, and, but even then, Uriah goes and sleeps on his couch. Okay. After all of that, when David realizes he can't get Uriah to participate in the cover-up of his crime... It picks up in verse 14. It says, In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. As Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the palace where he knew there were valiant men. 
And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Yes, you heard that correctly. Uriah delivered the orders for his own execution. That's how shameless David was in trying to self-protect and cover up his sin. So much so that in the pursuit of his own self-protection, the pursuit of his own self-preservation, that battle resulted with the deaths of many of his mighty men, maybe even the loss of the battle. It's hard to, the way the text describes it. It's, 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 it's at least a very, very painful victory. He did this because he was more faithful to himself to his own dignity, value, and worth, his own prestige, his own reputation, his own legacy, his own inheritance, that he abdicated his responsibilities as king. He was unfaithful to others in order to be faithful to himself. After this, David took Bathsheba as his wife, but in verse 26, at the end of that chapter, is a really ominous summary statement that says that all of this displeased the Lord. So what in the world does that tell us about Advent? (laughs) What in the world does that tell us about Christmas and Uriah's wife? It tells us that we long for a faithfulness of, of at least three types and of at least with three implications. The first is this. We long for a faithfulness that confronts rather than avoids unadulterated reality. And I use that word, unadulterated, very intentionally. Unadulterated means unredacted. It means without revision or without spin. It means that we are looking squarely darkness in its face, or as Fleming Rutledge says in her fantastic uh, devotional for Advent, Advent is designed to show that the meaning of Christmas is diminished to the vanishing point if we are not willing to, make, to take a fearless inventory of the darkness. Now, if you are at all familiar with the story of Uriah's wife or Bathsheba, you're probably aware, and if you've spent any time in the church, you're probably aware that there is an annoyingly consistent and recurring argument that evangelicals have every one to three years about what, whether what David did was adultery or rape. To be very frank, an unadulterated reality is that David used his authority and power so that Bathsheba couldn't say no to him. That, by standards both modern and ancient, is rape. Now, in saying that, I want, for some of you, that will be very good news, like, oh good, my pastor believes this. And I just want to like, tell you to chill your oats a little bit. Because the way that this argument happens is really concerning to me, and our response to that should not be self-justification or self-righteousness, but the good news of humility. And it is good news. It is good news because this is a stark contrast to the legacy, to the genealogy of Herod. The fact that Uriah's wife is included in this is is essentially to say that the Son of God was not born once upon a time in a galaxy far, far away. He was born in the midst of the same darkness, the same injustice, the same evil that still plagues the world today, 
And his royal qualifications is not some kind of a humble brag of, you know, Jonathan Edwards is my homeboy, right? It is him saying that his spiritual resume and qualification as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is to be descended from a rape victim. This is not a feel-good fairy tale that is naive about the real world or providing a merely temporary escape from it, but an historical event in time and space in order to confront everything that makes us so desperate to avoid it. To confront everything that makes us want to skip straight from Thanksgiving and all of the awkward family conversations about politics straight to Christmas so that we don't have to think about that. So we can think about instead a time when we were a lot more innocent as kids when we grew up and all the family traditions that are a part of Christmas. Jesus faithfully faced what we self-medicate to numb, what we retail therapy to delay, what we overwork and vacation to avoid, and yes, even argue ad nauseum how depraved David was in order to feel better about our complicity in the brokenness and the fallenness and the injustice of this world. We should not see David and the judgment I have thus rendered upon him as something that makes us feel good about our moral standing, but something that we can empathize with of thank God. Thank God he doesn't require an even greater righteousness from me in order to be loved. Frankly, avoiding the unadulterated reality whether whatever flavor that might be is driven by something that we may even avoid even more, and that is our own sense of shame. And so what Uriah's wife and her story tells us about Advent is that we long for a faithfulness that sees us with eyes of grace instead of shame. You might be wondering um, if I'm going to talk about why she, among all the others, is, is referred to as Uriah's wife and not by her name Bathsheba. It is not because, let me just clear this right now, it's not because Matthew is a misogynist, okay? It's not because he's trying to reduce Bathsheba's dignity or imply that her identity is only in, in and through her relationship to her husband. Quite the opposite. <laughs> Matthew is reminding the reader of David's failure and shame so that we can't gloss over it and remember only his victories at the expense of his defeats. The presence of Uriah's name in this is an explicit and unequivocal thumb in the eye of anyone who might be tempted to do so. And it is a statement that David is included in Jesus' genealogy, not because of his great deeds or his heroism, but despite his great betrayal and sin. David is included Because God, and we talked about this last week, God promised him, not because David proved himself worthy. David didn't earn it. That said, also, you should know that Bathsheba is not just a sermon illustration to be used by Matthew to illustrate Jesus' royal qualifications, okay? This has cosmic implications and personal implications alike. She is seen 
here. She is fully known and fully loved. A woman who was horribly used and objectified by a selfish king whose name we would never even know if not for the crime committed against her is given a place of honor in the lineage of the true king. Further, like, <laughs> how Bathsheba is known, her lasting identity, her ultimate dignity, value, and worth, it is not as She's not labeled here as David's victim. She's also not listed here even as David's wife, but as Uriah's wife. And in so doing, she is given a, right, a status of righteousness that is untainted by David's abuse, untainted by the darkness of the, of the world, untainted by the injustice we all experience. She is declared righteous in, in, in a couple of the most widely read paragraphs ever written, period. And if that weren't, if that alone were not a, a scandalous and obscene grace, it is, it is through her son, Solomon, that God establishes David's house forever, like we talked about last week. And then that the true and better David enters into human history to redeem all of our sin, all of our sorrow, and all of our shame. Come on, like, ah, this is amazing. I'm harping on this so that you would know, so that I would be reminded and not gloss over, as Michael pointed out, that, we can, that we, can, we can rush by these names so easily and skip to the good parts. This is amazing. A king who includes Uriah's wife in his royal lineage and genealogy is one who would never, ever use or abuse or tolerate or be ashamed of you. He is faithful to you and delighted to redeem every chapter of your story, every bit as much and more than Bathsheba's. I don't care what your story is. That is the promise that's for you and for your children. Lastly, this tells us that we long for a faithfulness that fights for us instead of abandoning us. The very first verse in the passage I read a moment ago, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, you might have noticed this. This is intentional, and it is, as, it is as ominous as it sounded. It says, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, i.e., setting the expectation that David would be doing so, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. David spared himself and sent everyone else to war. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Unlike, like this was the first sin, and maybe the gr even greater sin than rape. This was God's anointed king abdicating his most sacred and holy of duties, of whom Bathsheba was just one victim. 
That's the greatest, most faithful Messiah, anointed Christ, King. That's the best that humanity has to offer. This is the guy we cel- that, that Israel has celebrated for centuries, millennia since. <laughs> Unlike David, our true king didn't stay home. He didn't stay in heaven either. He didn't send someone else send someone else to fight in our place, he died in ours. He didn't abandon his responsibilities. He took responsibilities that were ours upon himself. He didn't just betray those, he didn't just not betray those he loved, he prayed for those who betrayed him while on the cross saying, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. That is faithfulness. It is, it is, it is, a, a, it is a cosmic and personal irony of mine that uh, my grandfather who wrote this book, that his name is, is David Edwards. Because when my dad was in fifth grade, uh, his dad, my grandfather, abandoned his family. He left them, and it was so painful. My dad is the only one among him, he and his three siblings, who had any kind of a meaningful relationship with him ever since then. That abandonment still haunts my dad to this day. In fact, it is the source, it is the ultimate source of current civil lawsuits between family members. My grandfather stayed with us for a short time when I was in high school. And um, aside from a weird random phone call he made long distance from the Isle of Man in England. Um, When I was home one summer from college, we did not hear from him after he moved out while I was still in high school. In fact, it was was not until 2016 that our family learned that he died in 2006, 10 years earlier. And it was only because my aunt happened to be driving past the family cemetery plot in central Missouri and stopped to take a look at the gravestones and the history of our family there and saw his, his tombstone. That was how we found out. He died discontent, lonely, and longing. I say this because... I am as much a legacy of David Edwards as I am Jonathan Edwards. So what does that say about who I am? What does that say about my identity, my dignity, value, and worth, my qualifications, in a sense? In short, it says everything, but not what you might think. When I was rereading this, um, I came across a paragraph because it's, it's so interesting reading the words of somebody who is, is reporting on a family. You get a sense of like how they viewed and perceived our, our genealogy, right? And in, the, in the, the last paragraph of the chapter on Jonathan Edwards, it says, With his descendants, he passed on to many the blueprint of intelligence and fiber that makes great people whether they achieve fame or not. It has been the privilege of this writer to know three prior generations of men 
of whom Jonathan would have justly been proud. What's fascinating about this to me is, is I've heard stories of those three generations he knew. My great-grandfather, my great-great-grandfather, and his father, one of whom, a Christmas tradition um, that, we, that my, my family does, uh, we do every year, uh, and I'll talk about that in a different sermon illustration. Um, Roy Benton Edwards was a saint. The number of people who came to his funeral when he died was greater than the number of people who lived in the, his town, okay? I hear in that paragraph impossible expectations that haunted my grandfather his entire life. I hear shame, and I hear at once a gratitude to belong, in a sense, to that family, and yet he doesn't include himself. If anything, this book is a product of his desperation to be worthy of being included and to be worthy of belonging to that lineage. I remember asking my dad in high school, like, what's his deal? Because I remember when he's lived with us, I, got, I feel like I got to know him a little bit better because um, I didn't know him well at all. And I remember him being incredibly fragile and brittle and, and, and hard at the same time, like insecure and proud simultaneously in a way that there was no daylight between those two. And I remember my dad answering by saying that <laughs> he's on a quest to prove that we were born with a silver spoon that someone else took from us. It's so sad. Because this is often the case, obsession with achieving our dignity, value, and worth that can only be received by grace achieves only one thing, and that is a greater insecurity that you then pass on to the next generation. The Edwards legacy that's not written about in here explicitly but is between every line is one of deep existential shame covered by a facade of self-saving achievement. I see it so clearly in my dad, and I got it from him. By, by, by God's grace, it will at least be mitigated, if not stop with me. But if it does, and to the degree that it does, it will not be because I am faithful or because I have achieved a dignity, value, and worth that my forebears couldn't. It will be because of the chesed, the steadfast love and faithfulness of my king, of our king. Because grace, right, grace is for those ex with exactly this kind of legacy. It is not for those who are descended from a theological and philosophical genius, but for those descended from slave owners. Because Jonathan Edwards was both. He's a genius and stupid at the same time. Incredibly wise and a fool. Righteous and utterly, profoundly, unfathomably depraved. Welcome to the family. We are glorious ruins who have no hope of rebuilding ourselves any more than my grandfather had of saving himself. But let me ask this. Maybe, maybe you don't know anything about your genealogy. Maybe even if you do or you did, that doesn't matter to you because uh, you're... You, you will do it all your dang self because you're America, right? Okay? 
Like, I'm welcome, me too. <laughs> Let me ask this. Maybe it's not that that keeps you awake at night. Maybe it's not what you're inheriting, but what you're earning. How's that working out? I think when I was younger, I used to think I could still fill that God-sized hole in my heart because I had time. And the older I get, the more I realize just how foolhardy that is. And taking a fearless inventory of the darkness within ourselves actually requires us to admit a really uncomfortable truth. And this is why Advent is so good for us, because it requires us to slow down and do business with this. That one way or another, trying to achieve our dignity, value, and worth will always require us to be unfaithful to those we love. It will only, always, and forever isolate us. That is why sin separates us from God, because we are being unfaithful to him. Sin separates us from each other and we, because it requires us to be unfaithful to each other if we hope to achieve a dignity, value, and worth that only, can only be received by grace. And I want you to know it will never be enough. See, I, I'll say this and then we'll jump into the q and I, I wish I could have preached this sermon to my grandfather. He died before I became a Christian. And I wish I could preach this to him because he spent at least the last few decades, if not his entire life, trying to fill a God-sized hole in his heart and walk in shoes only Jesus could fill. And it cost him bankruptcy. He had nothing except debt to pass along when he passed. It cost him any meaningful relationship with his family, and it, co- it, just, it cost him everything, and he died bitter and alone. David's pursuit... King David, not David Edwards. His pursuit of filling the God-sized hole in his heart cost him a faithful friend by his own hands, Uriah. It cost him a stillborn son. It cost him the respect of his children such that it cost his, the country he was king of a civil war that led to the deaths of tens of thousands of people he was charged to protect and care for. What will it cost you to continue down that current path? What's it going to take? <laughs> Who is trying to wake you up? Who should you be listening to that you are trying to avoid words of unadulterated reality staring you in the face? Because the unadulterated reality is that none of us are better than King David any more than I am better than David Edwards. And I say all this Like, hear me, I'm not saying this to wallow in regret or disappointment or to beat us up, but to tenderize us for grace. Because Christmas marks the advent of the faithfulness that we are all longing for and that we all wish that we are trying to not need. And I want you to hear that, one, it's impossible to not need that grace, to not need that faithfulness, but also that that need is satisfied. That that need, that thing that we all long for, his name is Jesus and he's real and he's here. And he will not abandon you. He does not see you through the eyes of shame. He does not tolerate you. He delights in you. 
he will be faithful to you even when you are unable to be faithful to him. And so to receive our dignity and value and worth from him both initially and daily, as, as Michael so beautifully said when he was, he was introducing what we celebrated this morning in, in Maddie's baptism, that was her receiving and declaring she doesn't need to strive anymore. That she gets to enter into the rest of God because of the one who is faithful to achieve it for her. Rest is her inheritance, not burnout. Shalom is her inheritance and her legacy, not despair. That is Jesus is doing. To do that, to receive that, is to be defined by grace, to be adopted into God's family by grace, and to have a legacy of grace to pass on to sons and daughters and neighbors alike. That is an incredible, powerful means for us to be able to look at the darkness we would rather avoid and to lean into and to receive that love even more fully than sentimentality can offer us. First question. Does it matter when discussing Jesus' paternal genealogy that Joseph isn't? Uh, that Joseph isn't genetically his dad, or is he? And does Mary's genealogy matter at all here? Okay, so we're going to talk about Mary's genealogy in a minute. Or, like, by a minute, I mean on Christmas Eve. (laughs) Um, So I'm going to punt on that one, okay? However, because we just got done in a sermon series on the life of David, you know that David was functionally adopted as Saul's son. When we say that Jesus is the Davidic king that we are waiting for, we are talking about someone where the precedent is not, is is firmly established that that happens through adoption, that the inheritance of the crown happens through adoption as well. And so no, he was not genetically related to Joseph. He was an adopted stepson of Joseph. That counts. If it doesn't count, then our adoptions as sons and heirs of of God, because of what Christ has done on the cross, that's just a metaphor. And it's not. I I was talking to my son Ransom. Uh, I'm still trying to get him to pray. Uh, so like any pastor's kid, he's really, you know, we're working on the, the, the basics, but he's, we talked for like 20 minutes about the Trinity last night. It was amazing, okay? He is my son. Um, and I was just, we were just marveling together at that, the fact that you can spend your entire life, you can spend all of eternity learning about God and his love and his character, and you can still never do it all. There's always more to learn. There's always more to, to marvel in and to revel in. And I am in awe that God operated and worked through generations upon generations upon generation to write a story of redemption that doesn't just make adoption an unnecessary good, but the primary way that we know and understand our Father in heaven. That our spiritual adoption as sons and daughters of God 
is actually our primary familial resemblance and lineage. Let me tell you how little it matters that I'm related to Jonathan Edwards, actually. It doesn't. I'm a son of a king. Jonathan Edwards has got nothing on Jesus. And he would agree with me, for the record. Okay. Next question. <laughs> I appreciate this disclaimer. This is a, look, squirrel question. So bear with me, but I want to learn. But wasn't the manger of Jesus likely made of stone because of the location and are of the stable in which he was conceived? I'm curious, asking for a friend. See the mother of Jesus photographic. Okay, only a church full, I have no idea if you are an engineer, but if you are, you're on brand. If you're not, you're on brand at least. Thank you for noticing that. I don't know. I don't know. I have no idea. But if this was you, let's talk about it because I like to nerd out on those kinds of things too, even if I don't like saying I don't know in front of everybody. Okay. What about other genealogies? Are they similar? Coming from someone who has definitely glossed over those parts. <laughs> Appreciate your, your honesty. Um, so, <laughs> the, the word, the, we get the word Genesis from the book of Genesis because it's, it means generations. And there's a very long gene, genealogy between Noah and Abraham in the very beginning. And so part of, there are, yes, so yes, there are other genealogies and they are similar in that they are, they are key elements of, of telling a story. It's not just kind of a legal, this, per, this is why they deserve to be king, box-checking exercises. They are telling a story of that. That on the one hand, well, let me say, put it this way. To be an image-bearer living in this time and place and every time and place since the fall and until Jesus returns, to be an image-bearer, to be a human being is to be a glorious ruin. It is to be frustratingly unable to shed the sins of our fathers, to repeat the same boneheaded, stupid, we know better mistakes every single time, and yet to be loved, to be cherished, to have, yes, moments of glory where, where we might be reflecting the, 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 the incredible significance of whose image we are made in every once in a while, and even that still is tainted by the story we try to author instead of allowing God to try to, to author it. That is the story. In the genealogy, the biggest reason why that's a weird, it's weird that that's significant for us is because we are such individualists and we are more American than Christian in this, right? We are more Western than Middle Eastern. We are more self-saving than we are trying to receive grace to save us, right? That doesn't mean don't hear what I'm saying. I'm not saying that you're not saved if, you, if, you're, if you're asking this question, okay? I, I'm saying like, this is an incredible frontier of grace that we, 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 can, we can plumb the depths of. And it is such an encouragement and a reassurance to know, guess what? You're not the first person who struggled with workaholism. You're not the first person who tried to earn or achieve your way to feeling worthy of other people's love. But you can be the first person in your family to stop trying to be. You, you can't... That's, that's my story. At least I thought it was. <laughs> I'm still the first and only in my immediate family. Knowing 
Let me put it, let's just say this personally and then we'll move into communion. Finding out that I wasn't, that God didn't just save me from a family of non-Christians and I'd never been in a, walked into a church building in my life before I was saved, okay? Knowing that is pretty amazing about God's faithfulness. Like, that's incredible that he could save me from that. Knowing that my dad is the first generation who isn't a church-going Christian is actually a whole lot better and more awesome because it means that we can't screw this up. We can't screw up our own salvation. And guess what? You're, God loves your... Let me, can't, let me talk to parents just for a second. I know I feel like I'm filibustering right now, but like... <laughs> Hear me, okay? I, I know, I feel the same anxiety you do about your kids knowing Jesus. As anxious and urgent as that feels to you, imagine how much more Jesus loves them. You're just scratching the surface. He died for them. You're just trying to get them to eat their stinking breakfast before they have to go to school, Okay? That's a comfort. And we know that this is true because that promise is for us and our children. And Jesus is the faithful king that we long for. Let me pray. Jesus, I thank you. I don't even know where to start. (laughs) I know I am not the only one with a story that feels like you inherited unavoidable shame or not enoughness. I know I'm not the only one who, whether for that reason or others, try to make up for it and try to be enough to make ourselves worthy. And Lord, the truth is, an Advent, that if we stare darkness in the face and take an honest inventory thereof, that we're not worthy. It is not the basis of our worth that you love us. It is because you love us that you love us. That is hard. That is hard for us to understand because, Lord, with you, it might be the first and only time we've ever heard it before. And thank you, Lord. I, pr- I thank you that you are so faithful that even that, our, incomprehensi- our incomprehension is not anything that can stop you from being faithful to love us by grace. Lord, we praise you. Thank you for coming 2,000 years ago, and thank you for the certainty of your return to make all things new.